the wordless message or the sermon that you can preach even if your hearers don't understand the language that you're speaking. Do you believe it's possible to preach even if your words are not understood? And the answer to that is, of course, 1 Peter 3 verse 1. Wives preach powerful sermons to their husbands without a word. If any wife has an unbelieving husband, she should arrange her life with such humility, gentleness, and purity that her unbelieving husband will be, quote, one without a word. And that's not the only time in the Bible that messages were sent without words. The Bible is full of examples of people whose very presence spoke about God. What about, for example, Christ himself or an angel in Daniel chapter 10, verse 8, when Daniel is walking beside the river along with many other men in the government. And as he's walking along the river, suddenly those men, something happens. What, what happens to them? We don't know. But Daniel says in chapter 10, verse 8, when he saw this vision of an angel or a pre-incarnate Christ, he suddenly fell over when, and was overcome. It doesn't say that there was any special words, but Daniel, when he saw that one, knew this one is beyond me. He's different from me and he's greater than me. But when he writes about it, he describes him as a man. So he knew there's some similarity between this one and myself, but there's a great difference. And the unspoken message alone was enough to put Daniel on his face. Those kinds of things happen throughout the Bible. That is, men of real godliness can attract men to the truth simply by their lifestyle. We find it in uh, Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man who is diligent in his business? That kind of man will stand in front of kings, not stand in front of common people. And what the Proverbs mean by that is, look at a man whose lifestyle is godly, and he will be in front of kings. We've mentioned this before in this class, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have 16 qualifications for what office? Elder. An elder or a pastor or an overseer, a bishop, a pastor in the church. And the pastor in that church has 16 qualifications and only one of them is a speaking gift. The other 15 are character and life qualities. And remarkably, in the list of the Beatitudes, very few of them have to do with speaking. Maybe being a peacemaker. The rest have to do with godly endurance and patience and humility and purity of heart. I'd like us to direct our attention to that category tonight that you'll actually find from Genesis to the book of Revelation through your Bibles. That is the character of what happens not only with your godly lifestyle outside of the church, but what happens with your body during the sermon. Years ago, while... Pastor Paul was planting a church, Trinity, in Bakota. He had a service that was full of distractions, and it seemed as if the people weren't paying attention. And afterward, he and I spoke about this, and he said something like, it seems as if they're not listening to any of my words. And maybe that was true. 
but there was a great message that was sent that could not be overlooked. That is, what we're doing here is very important. The subject of today is very heavy. It's beyond all of us. Another message that was sent was, there is a book that deserves an hour's meditation and reflection one day out of seven. That was communicated. Love was communicated because he came to speak a language that his skin color doesn't match. There was a great many messages that were sent and those people couldn't get away from it. In fact, some of them would leave the assembly because they don't want that message anymore. This great high and heavy thing, there's a book of abstract principles and ideas and colorful stories, but it's a long book and it's going to take a lot of work that I have to dedicate myself to. They don't want that message. Well, what kind of messages must we send when we are preaching? The very act of public speaking demands that we send messages. And the question is, what will those messages be? Will there be vaudeville entertainer? Vaudeville is cheap entertainment. Will this be the kind of entertainment that you can get on SABC 1, 2, 3, or 12? Will this be the kind of entertainment you can get on BTV? Will this be the kind of entertainment you get on Nat Geo Wild? Or will this be the kind of instruction and the kind of ceremony that says there are great things happening in another world and that other world is far more important? I'd like to address our attention this evening to four of the messages that we need to be sending. Because our sermons should speak a distinctively Christian message even if the listeners don't speak our language. Some people say that music is the universal language. That's a little too shallow. Music is a language without words, but there are a great many kinds of communication that happen without words. Nonverbal communications. The eyes and the eyebrows, the mouth and the tone, the rate of speech or the pausing, the bending of the body or the standing straight and stiff. The walking back and forth, one leg in front of the other, there is a great amount that is communicated. And I'd like to talk about those things this evening under four headings. The first one, as you can see in your notes, is authority. And underneath each of these four, what I'm going to do is give a statement and then some advice. The statement is biblical observations about this category of communication. And then the advice is some advice for pastors or preachers or communicators who would grow in this area of communication. What kind of Bible proof text could we pull up to show that when you stand up to speak, you should send the message of authority? Young men, if you want to learn to preach, you're going to have to find authority, and you don't have it in your smooth cheeks, soft as a baby's bottom still. You don't have gray hairs You don't have any wrinkles in your forehead yet. How are you going to communicate this authority? Well, you've got to communicate it because the preacher is what? What is he? Look down there. Letter A, number one. What is his title? He's a man of God. And that very title, if we understand anything about Jehovah, Elohim, God himself. In fact, if you understand the concept of the Trinity, a man 
of the Trinity, owned and controlled and operated, dominated by this, the Trinity? What does the Trinity communicate except someone outside of you and too great for you and too great for the whole world? Who can understand threeness and oneness? Who can get their minds around it? We cannot understand something because it is irrational, like 2 plus 2 is 5. Or we cannot understand something because it is far beyond us, like there are 100 billion stars, astronomers estimate. The first thing, I can't understand it because even God can't understand 2 plus 2 is 5. The second thing, I can't understand because like the nature of God, it's too big for me. And when we hear that a preacher is a man of God, it should be beyond us. It should say, that man is aspiring to be controlled in every aspect of his being by the one who made the worlds. But more than that, he must preach the word. He's not only a man of God, but his whole life and ministry is a communicating, a proclaiming the words of this God who's beyond us. And this is perhaps my favorite verse on the topic My wife put this on a plaque before we were married, and it's hanging in my study. 1 Peter 4, verse 11, it's letter A, number 2. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Young men, if you believe you are called to preach, let that verse terrify you. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Look straight in the face of this and say, how could I ever aspire to be a preacher? But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary and I could not stop. If that's your response after you look at this and say, I can't do this, but yet I can't not. Then perhaps you're called to be a pastor. In 1 Peter 4.11 Peter says, some of you are called to speak like the very mouthpiece of God. And that title is too high for any of us to take. But if you understand that what you're doing on Sunday has nothing to do with attracting people's attention to yourself or making you in any way aggrandized or making your name big. You are there to speak as a channel, a conduit, a hosepipe, delivering the pure water to those people who are dry and thirsty. If you represent God and his word, then you have authority. Not your own, but representing someone else. Um, years ago, I heard a preacher give this story. And I think it will stay in your, vo- in your mind if I tell it the same way this preacher did. But I don't know if I will quite reach his level of rhetorical power. He was a black preacher in the south side of Chicago at a large church. And I heard this on a tape that was given to me. And he was speaking about the authority of the Bible. And on that he said, I have four children. And my youngest is just a little baby girl, Jasmine. And my two oldest are teenage boys. And if they are laying back on the couch and little Jasmine walks in at eight years old and says, every one of you needs to get up and go clean your room. He said, they won't even move. They might do the dignity of lifting an eyebrow. (laughs) 
But my little girl can walk out of the room and come back 30 seconds later and add two words that changes everything in their response. Every one of those boys will get up immediately and begin to move and jump and run if she simply adds the words. And what words are they? Daddy said. As soon as she adds the words, Daddy said, get out of here and clean your room right now. And he he expands this story to say that the whole Bible is a collection of Daddy said. When you stand up to preach, you need to know I am nothing. Like David Brainerd, I wonder why would anyone listen to me? Like David in 1 Samuel 24, 24. Who am I but a dead dog and a flea? Like Abigail, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. I am nothing, but I'm here to tell you that daddy said or the father spoke. And if the father spoke and you don't like it or it's controversial, he still said it regardless of your interest in the subject or your agreement with the subject. Here's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The preacher should never be what? Apologetic. He should never give the impression that he is speaking by their leave, as it were. He should not be tentatively putting forward certain suggestions and ideas. You have no self-confidence, but you are a man under authority, and therefore you have authority. Let's give some advice on this heading. This kind of authority should actually destroy your self-confidence. Men who are self-confident will not be good preachers. The preacher's authority, like his salvation, comes from outside himself. It allows men who are naturally timid to be lions in the pulpit. We don't need nice guys anymore. We don't need chipper men anymore. We don't need lighthearted or clever men. But we can find those in the world all over. What we need are men who have no confidence in themselves. They have no trust at all in the arm of the flesh. But they say, God has spoken. And I don't even know. There's got to be men better than me. But no other men are here at this hour, at this time, at this place. And God's put a burning desire in my heart to tell my wife and children or to speak in this congregation. And the other believers around have said, we recognize that God is doing something in your heart. And though I feel entirely unable... I have authority from God to say what his word says. So then your voice should be free from wavering. It should be free from doubt. You should study and pray so that when you speak, it does not fall into the pattern of speech that says, um, uh, well, what, what, what chapter 16 is actually saying, it's getting, um, that should be banned. Not because you have this this heritage of ability to command your stage presence, but because you know that God has spoken. If you have this boldness, then we should see it in your shoulders. We should see it in your legs. We should see it in your face. We should hear it in the depth of your voice and in the range of speed and pitch that you use. You should look into the eyes of your audience because you're not afraid of them. And isn't that what God told Ezekiel in chapter 2? 
Do not be afraid of their looks or their faces, Ezekiel. Even though they are a rebellious house, he warned them up front. You're going to a place that's very rebellious. They're not going to like you. They're going to give you bad looks. I have sometimes been preaching when I have seen people respond with their face that makes me think they're not happy with what I just said. Prepare yourself for that. Because didn't Jesus say already in Matthew 5 verse 10, Blessed are you when men will revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. That's what they did to the prophets before you. And think of Stephen. How did their faces look? They gnashed on him with their teeth, meaning he could see they were grinding their teeth. You have to imagine these people, their shoulders and their arms crossed. They're turning from side to side, whispering to one another. Their brows are furrowed and their mouths, you can tell, they are angry. And at any moment, they're going to fly out of their chairs. And they did. Be a Stephen-like preacher. Your voice should say confidence because you're standing on authority. One way to learn this is to look at the opposite of prosperity preachers or TV preachers. Watch, watch men who speak on TV. Probably, if your authority is like their authority, then it's the wrong kind of authority. Although some men who speak in public, like um, British Prime Minister, World War II, Winston Churchill. Churchill. Winston Churchill. There are great things we can learn from some public speakers. But in general, the world's kind of preacher will have an authority that comes from myself, from my own charisma, from my own confidence that I'm a friendly guy, a funny guy, a chipper guy. From my dogmatic authority, I can lead people on. Examine, though, the Lord Jesus. When anyone say of Jesus Christ, when Jesus had finished these words... They were astonished because he taught them as one having authority and not like the scribes. Would anyone say that of you? They were astonished at the way he talked. They had not heard preachers talk that way before. He was bold and strong. In fact, we could say it this way, and I'll summarize the whole point under this. Can we see for once a man of God in the pulpit? And here I emphasize not of God, but manliness. Can we see a true man, one who's not afraid to speak God's truth from the old paths? He's not afraid to say things that are very unpopular and uncommon. Well, the first thing your message should send is this. So let's say you have a Zulu-speaking man who comes to your church, and you are not preaching in Zulu, and he does not know your language. And he somehow came in and felt awkward walking out. If he listened to you for 45 minutes, would he say, that man, that man sent the message of authority. He sent the message as if he was dealing with some great, overwhelming king. Second message that you should send could perhaps be put on a square of opposition in the opposite corner from authority, compassion. Matthew 9, 36 But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because... Two things. What were the two things that were in these people that brought compassion to our Lord? They're tired. They're scattered. Look back to that word. 
He was moved with compassion for them. That word moved with compassion, in fact, was moved with compassion, is one word in the original. And it means his inner organs felt like they were being displaced. It's a picturesque term that some people could use for sickness. Our Lord had some kind of physical, psychosomatic, that means mind to body connection, where when he looked at those people, something happened in his stomach. Why? On behalf of their exhaustion, and behalf of the fact that they were scattered around. And those are metaphors for what was happening in their souls. Look at the next one, Matthew eleven twenty eight. This was the verse that brought Dakota to Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What, what mercy. What compassion. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. I am gentle. Did you know that's the only character quality that Jesus ever predicates of himself? By predicate, I mean I am this. The only character quality that Jesus ever predicates of himself is I am gentle and lowly of heart. We dealt with that in our series on humility last year. Our Lord Jesus is such a model of humility and it shows in his preaching. He will not even break a half-broken piece of grass. If, if, if there's a match that's burnt out, he won't break off that burnt ash. He's so gentle. When he approached Jerusalem in Luke 19.41, he wept over the city. Here's Lloyd-Jones again. To love to preach is one thing, but to love those to whom we preach is quite another. Many men love to preach because then all the women see them. Then all the men are under them. Then all the children have to be quiet. But to love those you preach to is quite a different thing. If you lack this element of compassion for the people, you will also lack the pathos, which is a very vital element in all true preaching. If you know nothing of this, you should not be in a pulpit, for this is a certain to come out in your preaching. If there's no concern for the souls of men, they will hear it. Maybe they can't put it into words, but there are a great many things that people know, but they cannot put into words. Your young child knows there is a God but she might not put it into words. And if you asked her to prove it, she would be baffled. But she knows there's a God who made her and who made mommy and daddy. And here, people will come and listen to you preaching. And if you don't have a love for their souls and a sympathy that goes out of yourself and puts yourself in their shoes, that unties your big boots and tosses them to one side and comes and kneels in front of them, gently takes off those shoes, laces them up. And you say, well, these are pretty tight. These cramp my style. These are uncomfortable. In fact, these have rocks in them. These are threadbare. That's how they feel. And if you're not able to have sympathy with them and to feel that compassion and love for them, they will certainly know it. You can't hide it from them. John Bunyan said, true love is the prerequisite to all biblical preaching. And Spurgeon, in his lectures to my students, I can't remember if he was quoting someone or if it was straight from Spurgeon, said, love is the all-conquering argument. They can forget your logic, but they can do nothing against the power of your love. 
Some advice. Preachers must cultivate a burden for lost souls. The Christian religion is unbelievable if we do not love the lost. Just think about what we tell them. We are telling men that if they do not listen to us today, they will burn in an eternal torment forever. And yet we have no concern. We're neutral. It's uh, take it or leave it. Do what you like. You wouldn't treat a dog that way. If you knew a dog was most certainly about to walk into the road and get hit by a car or a train, you wouldn't treat that dog. And if somehow that dog got near or got hurt, think of the way you would express compassion for that dog. And then we come in and profess to believe in a high and exalted God and in a holy law and in flaming divine thunderbolts that will come down at any moment that his good pleasure determines and they are held back only by his own sovereign will outside of our knowledge. And there is a Christ who says to all men, come unto me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. Today is the day of salvation. And we speak as if, well, um, I'm selling, uh, I'm selling buckies. You can, you can take the 2014 or the 2016. Now the 2014 has, has higher miles, but it's cheaper. Men shouldn't believe your message if you communicate in that way. And you're going to have to ask God to give you a burden and a love for souls. Think of Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, when he says, I could wish that I were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Think of the great preachers in the Scottish revivals who were commonly weeping during their sermons. Think of what was said with George Whitfield after he died by his servant. He said it was very common for him not to finish a single sermon without weeping. I understand there are different personalities, and I'm not saying that you must fit his personality or their personality, but whatever your personality does, you send that message of love. There are some John Pipers and there are some John MacArthur's and they are both gifts to the church and both of them are godly men who embody this principle. And I don't think I've don't think I've ever heard or seen John MacArthur cry in the pulpit. And if your if your personality is John Calvin or John MacArthur, then bless God and pray for the power of the Spirit and serve God in that personality. But make sure that you send the message according to the way that God has built you. I am full of love for these people. And if you are that kind of man who's more stoic and you don't show that affection, then show it in the way that is appropriate to you as a man controlled by another spirit. And if you are a man who is very expressive, perhaps you'll need to guard so that it does not come across as false or overdone or self-spun. Advice number two, pray for your people by name. Don't make any excuses that you're bad with names or there's so many people or you can't remember them or the children. You will remember the people that are important to you. How many of you enjoy soccer or rugby? Can you name the names of the people, the players who are on the championship team last year? At the, at the World Cup, do you know the players? You don't know anything about those people. They wouldn't know you if you saw them on the street. And you're going to forget them before your daughter gets married. Oh, who's that guy? Oh, wait, there was some guy. Oh, he scored once. Yeah, yeah. 
But these are men and women who are going to walk with you through life and who are going to stand with you cursing your name as a false prophet in eternity or blessing God that you spoke like the mouthpiece of God to them. So pray for them by name. Pray for an extended period of time for that place and those people. Pray for the barriers to faith. Prolonged prayer builds hope and love. And I can say, as I have learned over the years in ministry, one of the ways to cultivate a burden for souls is to pray for an extended period of time. Speaking from my own personality, my own spiritual experience, I commonly need 10 or 15 minutes of prayer before I find myself truly enjoying God and something like what I would describe as a freedom in prayer. Perhaps you're different, but that has been my experience. Jesus, Paul, Jeremiah, Paul says he wept commonly in Acts chapter 20, night and day with tears. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. I believe there's nine references to Jeremiah weeping in his book alone. Of course, our Lord. Think often of the eternal conscious torment that will justly come upon all those who are outside of Christ. Think of your own escape by grace from a dark and sinful lifestyle. How often in my course of ministry do I come against people who have all the marks of depravity and only the faintest drop of God's common grace? And when I'm walking in the Spirit and I return home from those days in evangelism, I have told Amy how many times Amy, I thank God for his grace. That will help you love God more and have pity on them because but, by, but for the grace of God, that would be me or you. You know that man that you preach to and he's so backward or hard or disinterested. He's diffident. It seems as if it's water off a duck's back to him. It's in one ear and out the other. He has no interest or concern. He laughs when you're preaching and glances at his phone. And you would be that way if grace had not stopped you. And grace is not shortened. That it can reach down its powerful arm and grab that man. And twist his head. And correct his eyes. Spend time with your people. Listen to them. Sympathize with them. So that your sermons will ring with genuine concern for their souls. And here, again, Pastor Schleyline is a good example because he... He cares enough to ask his people questions about themselves, to try to learn who they are. Number three, what can your message say even if people don't understand? Sobriety. Your message should say sobriety. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, it's remarkable how many times this character trait shows up in the qualifications for a pastor. An overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, Prudent, respectable. Do you see that word respectable in 1 Timothy 3, 2? It's there also in Titus 1, verses 5 to 8. But if you count all the times that Greek word or one of its cognates, that means one of the words in the family, like a verb and a noun or an adjective, it is remarkable that over and over Paul the Apostle tells Timothy and Titus, I want you to choose men to be pastors who are controlled by seriousness. It can be a great blessing to be able to have humor. And some people are gifted with humor. And some people are cursed with it. Because God would have his men be serious men. Because there are no jokes as we think of them in the Bible. 
There is humor, but there are no jokes. The doctrines of Christianity are not trifling, they're not light, they're not fluffy, there are no marshmallows here. There's nothing entertaining. Think of this statement that we just saw in the last one. Whoever was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Or Isaiah 53, 10, speaking of the cross, it pleased the Lord to crush him. There's nothing light. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's nothing light about that. Look at this quote from Dabney, number three, page 57. The preacher sees the worth and the danger of their souls in the light of eternity, and his eloquence is inflamed from the very altar of God. Every tone and look and gesture from the moment he enters the pulpit until he leaves it, the structure of every sentence in his sermon should reveal a soul in which levity, that means lightness, Self-seeking and vanity are annihilated by the absorbing sense of divine things. Let me be very practical here and say, since I have been listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones, and since I have come to grips with the fact that my own personality is often lighthearted and humorous, I'm trying to offset for those potential dangers. If I know the bike commonly falls to the right, I'm going to lean a little more to the left. If you'll listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, almost every sermon begins with these words. The words to which I should like to draw your attention this evening are to be found in the book of... Almost every sermon. From the beginning. Now, I took something away from that. He does not waste a sentence. There's no banter. Banter is lighthearted talk. Hey, guys, what's up? Hey, look at tonight. Nice to see you guys. Tired? Ready to get started? Okay. Nothing like that in Lloyd-Jones. It's all the words to which I should like to draw your attention are to be found in the book of Habakkuk, the first chapter and the 13th verse. And he always says it like that. He doesn't say chapter one. The first chapter and the 13th verse. And then he'll read the text. And then the first thing he says is some kind of explanation of the text in every sermon I've heard. I have never heard him say, give an illustration or a joke or comment about something else. I have been trying to do that in my preaching, following his example, to attempt to offset the way my bike falls over. I'm trying to say, if the whole world was listening right now, I've often thought, as I stand up to preach in Valdezia in front of 30 people, these poor people with a dirt floor and a tent that's falling apart because we haven't finished the building yet. When I stand up, the angels are listening and immortal souls are listening. I want to make every single word an arrow that goes into their heart, which is why I hate giving announcements Sunday morning. But if we do have to give it, let them not come after Lloyd has said, now I'll call pastor to give the message. After that word, no announcements. We've just sang a song. Our hearts are as near as they can be to a prepared state. Let the next word and every word until amen be something that will grip them with eternity, with sobriety and seriousness. Let's look at um, Lloyd-Jones again at number four. The preacher must be a serious man. He must never give the impression that preaching is something light or superficial or trivial. You remember what was said of the saintly Robert Murray McShane of Scotland in the last century. It is said that when he appeared in the pulpit, even before he had uttered a single word, people would begin to weep silently. Why? Because of this very element of seriousness. The very sight of the man gave the impression that he had come from the presence of God. And you remember, don't you, Moses, in Exodus 33, when he comes down from the mountain, 
what happened to his face. Friends, that was a miraculous visitation where his face physically shone. I've never known of a person in church history who has had that. But I have heard of people like Robert Murray McShane who somehow in the way they walked to the pulpit overcame their people. I read about it in the Scots Worthies. When, the, when these men would stand up to preach, all the men knew, just look at the way he looks. Look at his face. It looks like he's seen into the grave and seen into heaven. It looks like he just tasted something very sweet, like I would pay all my money if I could just taste that. And it looks like something so terrifying that whatever warning he's come to give, I'm going to listen to it. All bundled up into one. That's real faith in God. And I would tell you, that cannot come. That cannot come without an experience from God. What we talked about on Sunday night, the witness of the Spirit. That cannot come by someone saying, I'm going to try to imitate the way Lloyd-Jones Lloyd was or McShane was. I'm going to pray and fast and meet with God in private until my soul is equal to their souls. And you know what? When I say my soul is equal to their souls, you should be saying, how could that be? My soul equal to these great ones who are filled with God's spirit? I haven't been to college. I've been so busy. I work 50 hours a week. When I get an hour and a half at night to study and I'm so tired. And when I do try to study, I'm 15 minutes in and my little girl comes and pulls my sleeve. And then I, I'm not like them. Exactly. If you start praying and pleading like that and being honest about what we really are, God will come down with grace and mercy and help even people who work 50 hours a week and have cute little girls at their home. Advice. Let us recognize the triviality of the present age. Put up a shelf in your mind. Ever since the logic class, I'm using this metaphor over and over. Put up a shelf in your mind and label that shelf trivial. Trivial means things that don't matter. They might be true, but they just don't matter. Like what if you stood here on Crook Street today and you counted all the cars that went by and you said, it's 1,200, 1,217 cars went by and four motorcycles. That's what we call trivial. I don't care how many cars went by and I don't care how many motorcycles. Our age is obsessed with that. Social media teaches us to do that. Twitter and Facebook tell us the whole act and art of communication is all based on triviality. That's the point. Politics is trivial. The economy is trivial. Life is trivial. Just find anything to stimulate your animal urge and you're happy. Doesn't it sound like our Lord eat, drink, and be merry? All urges from the body. Eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to die tomorrow. Social media by its by its definition, forget the, well, forget the message, the words you put on it. It's, it's, its existence communicates that way. Can you imagine having a serious counseling session on Facebook? Mm-hmm. How, how, how could it happen? Well, it was just me and I was counseling this man. How can you ever say serious, heavy, heavy things when your phone is dinging every two minutes with this other friend request? I'm not, I'm not attacking Facebook. I am saying recognize the triviality of the present age and create this category in your mind. And you'll, you'll start to fill it up with examples. And you'll see very quickly clothing, cars, fashion, activities, entertainment, my own thoughts, 50% of my words, 
fit in the category, that shelf that I just built in my mind, trivial, suddenly you'll start to fill that shelf up and that will help you when you go to confess in prayer. Sometimes when we confess, we have nothing to confess because we don't have shelves in our mind. But put up a shelf in your mind for trivial, childish, and you'll suddenly find that shelf is filled with things and you'll think, I have to be a preacher? But my, my trivial shelf is overflowing and things are falling on the ground. Over here is my shelf for serious Heavy, worthy thoughts of God. And there's two packages and they're small. That's my shelf. It's got two. This one's overflowing like a Christmas tree. (laughs) Number two, read men who are blood earnest. Blood earnest was the term used to describe Thomas Calmer's. Scottish preacher in the 1800s. Ignore the frothy, chipper authors of today. Look for books from Banner of Truth. Look for Spurgeon, Bunyan. If it says Puritan, get it. Because those men, those men had this. And what I love, there are many things I love about the Puritans, but one of the things I love is that they were from all denominations, so they had their differences, and yet they had this similarity. And I think the great similarity of the Puritans, as I mentioned in church history, was their overwhelming devotion and seriousness and commitment and absolute faith in Jesus and his word. And you can have that even if we differ on some minor things. You can still have that. Number three, this is Jonathan Edwards, quote, resolved to think on much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. He said that at 19. Have any of you thought this week that you might die before Sunday? That's a wise man. It'll make you live like a godly man if you think, I might be dead before Sunday. Number four, keep laughter, humor, and joking in its appropriate place. Look at uh, the one under there. Laughter seems to have replaced repentance as the goal of many preachers. Surely it is a sign of the age that we preachers are far more adept at humor than what? It's easier to find a funny preacher than a weeping preacher. Study theology. Gentlemen, We study theology because this is one of the ways we fuel all the godly affections that will make our message powerful to those men and women. Let's close with this, number four, urgency. Behold, now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 5, just three verses earlier. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. And those words do belong in verse 20, not in verse 21. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 12. A man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time. You don't know when you will leave. Look at the quote there, number five from Lloyd-Jones again. Can a man see himself as a damned sinner without emotion? Can a man look into hell without emotion? Can a man listen to the thunderings of the law and feel nothing? Or conversely, can a man really contemplate the love of God in Christ Jesus and feel nothing? What is preaching? Underline this. Logic on fire. Eloquent reason. It is theology on fire. 
And a theology which does not take fire, I maintain, is a defective theology. Or at least the man's understanding of it is defective. Advice. Preach at funerals so that you can keep in constant touch with the shortness of life and the unexpected nature of death. If you preach at funerals, you'll be there among children who've died, teenagers who've died, mothers who did not make preparations and plans for their children, fathers who perhaps you'd spoken to earlier. I spoke to one man in Elam whose two sons and daughter were attending Elam Baptist Church in 2012. The man agreed to do Bible studies with me, but when I came to his house, he wasn't there. I was writing a paper for a degree at that time on motives for evangelism, and I wrote about election, how it is a great motivation to continue evangelizing, to walk, and I even wrote of that man's house in that paper. Somewhere at that time, he hung himself. Two of his children are still attending Elam. We need to have this urgency upon us because when the devil can get a foothold, he will be glad to take men's lives. Advice number two in public prayer, raise the subjects of eternal death and hell and the glories of heaven. Use the words you and now and synonyms for those terms. Call on men and command men to preach. A very moving section in Spurgeon once in one of his sermons, he said, On the authority of Jesus Christ, I command you to repent and believe. And he turned it in the next sentence and said, Did I anger you with that? I had all authority to say it. But if I did anger you, then I beg you. Is that too low for you? Then I come alongside and put my arm around you and say, Friend, walk with me together to Christ. Isn't he wonderful the way he does that? He's got it. Some people will be commanded. Some will get angry, then you just get down on your knees and beg. Some will say, what? He's down begging? That's not fitting. Okay, fine. Let me be your friend. But he got the idea, and he sends it across. There's urgency. I think these four attitudes can parallel each other and sit, as I mentioned earlier, in a square of opposition so that each corner parallels with some similarities and some differences from the others. But our messages should speak because of our body, our posture, our hands, our eyebrows, our tone of voice. And those things cannot be faked. Because men may not follow your words. Your, Your logic may be too high for them. Or you may speak too quickly for them. But they can interpret your face immediately. And your body posture. As men said of Wesley... Or maybe as Wesley said of himself, if you set yourself on fire, men will come to see you burn. May we all have the fire of God in our lives and in our hearts. Any questions?